In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor at the EU summit in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London, but this week coming to you from Wales. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. I'll have an update from the summit in Brussels on Europe's big Poland-shaped headache. What happens when a member state says its own constitution supersedes EU law and the European Court of Justice? And I'm in Cardiff talking to the Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford and Ireland's Foreign Minister Simon Coveney about post-Brexit trading arrangements and why, as technical talks on the Northern Ireland Protocol continue, Lord Frost himself got the Polish treatment in the House of Lords over the role of the European Court of Justice. Well, let's start there, Sean and Tony. We'll take us back maybe to last week. We were speaking on Friday just as David Frost was flying out from London to Brussels, or maybe he took the train, Tony. I'm I'm not sure of the mode of transport to meet his counterpart, European Commission Vice President Mara Shevchevich to discuss issues in the protocol. Now, we didn't get their statement or their readout from that meeting last Friday for understandable reasons. The reasons, of course, being the tragic murder of Sir David Amos at his constituency clinic. But what did we learn about what Mara Shevchevich and David Frost had discussed. Well, of course, this was following the the big week, um, w- which was the EU putting out its proposals on flexibilities in the protocol, and then, of course, David Frost's big speech in Lisbon, which we covered uh, last week. Um, and then after those two big uh, momentous uh, days in, in protocol terms, uh, they had lunch on Friday, as you mentioned. Then it was the following Monday, of course, that the statement came out. It didn't tell us a huge amount. It just talked about the... Uh, This was a UK statement talking about both men being in Brussels for a discussion on the continuing difficulties uh, with the protocol. Um, They discussed the proposals published by the EU and uh, Lord Frost, according to the statement, recognised the efforts Vice President Maros Shevchevich had made in bringing these forward and uh, underlined that they would discuss them in a constructive and positive spirit. Um, Obviously, David Frost again reaffirming that he wanted significant change to the protocol uh, as set out in the UK's command paper of July 21st, including on governance, which of course is shorthand for, or longhand if you like, for the European Court of Justice and essentially that uh, the UK would be looking for durable solutions uh, quickly uh, that safeguard the Good Friday Agreement in all its dimensions. So that was really the on Monday uh, after the launch the previous Friday. To today, and you mostly you've been engaged in the European Council summit that's been going on yesterday and today, today being Friday, as we record this, Brexit wasn't on the agenda. There was a line in the summit conclusions on trade. They just said trade was discussed. They didn't really get into the details on it. And certainly if Brexit was mentioned, it didn't appear in those conclusions. But any update today outside the summit? Well, the the technical talks on the protocol uh, were continuing this week in Brussels. And 
from what I gather, the European Union has presented its proposals to the British side and essentially the British have had lots of questions and have been looking for a lot of explanations on the uh, EU's proposals and they are of course on, on customs, on medicines, on a role for Stormont and uh, SPS or or agri-food movements across the Irish Sea and uh, from what I gather they have been talking in real detail about these proposals the UK asking a lot of questions the commission thinks that this is probably a good thing um, that they're getting into this kind of detail nothing yet on the European Court of Justice that hasn't come up the EU has received the UK's legal texts, which David Frost promised the day of the Lisbon speech. And I'm told that that is a fairly faithful legalese representation of the command paper on the 21st of July. Uh, but of course, large swathes of that, uh, as far as the EU is concerned, are simply out of bounds because they would regard they would they would require a renegotiation of the protocol and that that is not somewhere that they're prepared to go, as they've said publicly. Um, so that, that's where things are. They're, they're going to be meeting again in London next week. Lord Frost and Mara Shevchevich spoke by phone yesterday, being Thursday, to set up the agenda for next week. And I think the Commission for its part, you know, wants this to be a, a fairly quick process. They don't want to be going back and forth over old ground. They certainly don't want to be getting into a, a long discussion about the European Court of Justice. And they want each session to be uh, recorded um, or, the, or at least if there's any common ground emerging through each technical session, that that's kind of put down and, and put in the bank. Uh, and then they move on so that there is momentum built towards a uh, some kind of conclusion in in the coming weeks um i suppose a final point on this process um is the uk up for a deal on the basis of the eu proposals very hard to say according to people i've spoken to um and, and they almost feel that perhaps downing street has not yet made up its mind on whether this now is the basis for a kind of definitive agreement on how the protocol should operate. Sean, when Boris Johnson visited Northern Ireland uh, yesterday, he was saying that, you know, he thinks there's an issue with the protocol. It needs to be trashed out. We can't go on like this forever. It's affecting real people and real businesses. Again, highlighting the pragmatic issues that Mara Shevchevich's uh, proposals were designed to address. And he said, I don't think it's coherent with the good Good Friday Belfast Agreement because the way it's been used is creating unnecessary checks down the Irish Sea. Again, this is uh, another one of those practical issues and that a resolution of this would have to be found pretty quickly, which again echoes the European Commission's time frame. So if you were to read those public statements, you could say, well, look, there's the basis for business being done. However, if you were to listen to David Frost, like you were uh, speaking in the House of Lords during the week, you might draw a different conclusion. Well, you might indeed, and I, I think it's because there are two issues here which we've somewhat teased out previously on, on this podcast. One is those practical issues of, of implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol and trying to make life easier for the poor old truck drivers and freight forwarders and business people in Northern Ireland so that they can get their goods moving uh, more or less as freely as they, they can um, under the uh, two sets of rules, the British rules and the uh, European rules, and try and just do things on a practical way to make life uh, as easy as you can for people. But there's this other issue 
that does intrude in there from time to time, and that is that question about the role of the European Court of Justice in uh, overseeing how those practical rules get implemented. Uh, and that is a much more difficult thing to, uh, to deal with. Uh, and the question then becomes, yeah, you could probably do a quick deal uh, if you're looking at the practical issues, the right. practical things. Uh, you know, they're in play at the moment. But the right. big issues, are, are you going to have a quick deal on that? I don't think so. I mean, Frost, in, in his uh, address to the House of Lords, or his uh, questions in the House of Lords on Thursday, uh, was asked about, was there anything at all from the EU proposals that he liked? And he said, yeah, one thing that I am very excited about is that they've shown that uh, uh, that they can do what they've previously said is impossible, that is changing their own laws for the special circumstances of Northern Ireland. It's now possible. That's a very important and very well welcome step and I hope they might be able to go further than the proposals that they right. put on the table last week so yeah Tony uh, they will bank it indeed they'll bank it and they will come back for more uh, but there is uh, these big more difficult and uh, more constitutional issues if you like and one of those was uh, helpfully uh, raised um, by uh, Lord Moylan uh, Daniel Moylan it would be helpful because like Lord Frost Daniel Moylan is what you might call a Boris peer created in 19 in uh, 2020 he's also like Lord Frost a former advisor to Boris Johnson when they both worked uh, in the mayor of London's office in uh, Mr Moylan's case uh, he specialized in uh, transport things uh, but now Lord Moylan stood up in that House of uh, Lords question uh, session and asked uh, a question, um, the following question indeed, which gave Lord Frost a chance to intervene on a subject close to his heart, uh, which was uh, Northern Ireland and the jurisdiction of the European Court uh, of Justice. Here's what uh, Lord Moylan had to say to begin with. Lord, in addition to disrupting and diverting trade, the Northern Ireland Protocol contains a systemic democratic deficit in that laws are made with direct effect for Northern Ireland by the European Union with no opportunity for democratic say by those affected. Uh, this is unique in Europe. Uh, my Lords, would my noble friend agree that the removal of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice in Northern Ireland is a necessary but not sufficient step for correcting this anomaly and uh, restoring this basic human right? My, my Lords, I very much agree with the, uh, the thrust of the question asked by my, my noble friend. Uh, we've made very clear in the, uh, the command paper that we published in July that uh, the, the Court of Justice and the system of law of which it was at the apex uh, were a big part of the political difficulty that has arisen in Northern Ireland and we need to find more balanced ways of resolving disputes for the future. Lord Little. My Lords, in the um, Noble Lord's uh, recent speech in Lisbon, which he made in Lisbon and not in this House, um, uh, he said that the protocol represents a moment of EU overreach when the UK's negotiating hand was tied. But aren't the facts somewhat different? Isn't it the case that the Johnson government, on your recommendation, accepted, uh, accepted an arrangement that Theresa May said no British Prime Minister would ever accept? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that the, the Johnson government, presumably on your recommendation, 
decided to prioritise a hard Brexit over the sustainability of the Good Friday Agreement uh, and peace and security in Northern Ireland, and that the Johnson government, perhaps on your recommendation, signed a treaty in the full knowledge that you had no intention of implementing its full uh, provisions. Isn't it about time you accepted some personal responsibility for the mess we are in in Ireland? So, my lords, uh, I reject the, uh, the implication of the question that there is any contradiction between so-called hard Brexit, which is the only real Brexit and only, the only form of Brexit that allows this country the freedom it needs, and peace and security in, in Northern Ireland. Those two objectives are perfectly compatible. They, they absolutely are compatible. Uh, we agreed a protocol that we hoped would do the job. It needed sensitive handling. It was highly uncertain in some of its mechanisms, and unfortunately it has not got the sensitive handling it has needed, and therefore we need to, to come back to the question. That is a pity, but unfortunately it's the reality. Lord Purvis of Tweed. My Lords, on the 4th of August, the Northern Ireland Statistics and Research Agency, in their most recent publication, uh, had highlighted that trade between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland in 2019 had increased 9.9%, uh, whereas in the UK it, to the GB it had increased by 6.6%. So his claim that there's a trade diversion as a result of the protocol is not the case. There is now trend with growth to the rest of the Republic. So therefore, is it not part of the UK government's responsibility to promote exports from Northern Ireland to Ireland and make sure that the Northern Ireland economy benefits from certain parts of the protocol. So what are the elements of the protocol that he's most proud of? Um, my Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of uh, securing a deal that delivered on democracy and took this country out of the European Union in 2019, as the people of this country had voted for. On the question of trade, uh, the Irish Central Statistics Office, if you look at the figures for the first eight months of the year, show that trade to from Ireland to Northern Ireland has gone up 35% and from Northern Ireland to Ireland has gone up 50%. Those are significant figures and clearly show that there is something unusual going on, which I think is trade diversion. Yeah, and that second question there came from uh, Lord Little, another big beast uh, of the House of Lords and European policy. Uh, as uh, Roger Little, he was the chief policy advisor to Tony Blair on European Union matters. He then went to work for um, Peter Mandelson when he was the EU Trade Commissioner, uh, and then he left Mandelson's cabinet uh, to go and become the chief advisor on all things uh, to the president of the European Commission, Jose Manuel Barroso. So uh, you can perhaps understand with that pedigree why he was getting a bit uh, angry uh, with Lord Frost uh, and uh, his way of proceedings. Uh, but then things got a bit more interesting when we had uh, yet another blast from the past. Uh, first of all, Lord Frost was asked uh, by uh, Baroness McIntosh about whether uh, he believed in uh, that if he tried to reopen the protocol, it would lead to the reopening of the entire treaty. He was saying, no, 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 they're completely separate things. We can do this in a very limited way. And that answer prompted an intervention by Lord Kerr. Remember him? Yes, indeed. Uh, the man who wrote Article 50, the very mechanism by which a country 
can leave the European Union. Uh, he, uh, of course, uh, another former uh, permanent representative of the UK to the European Union, another absolute dyed-in-the-wool expert about the EU and EU law and all the rules governing it. Here's what he had to say to Lord Frost and Lord Frost's answer. Lord Kerr, okay. I'm really puzzled by uh, the Minister's reply to his noble friend Baroness McIntosh's question. Does he not acknowledge that in law a protocol is an integral part of the treaty? Does he accept that safeguard action under Article 15 of the protocol couldn't extend to abrogating Articles 12 and 5 of the protocol which set out the role of the court? Does he also accept that the EU could not conceivably agree to amend Article 12 to confer on a non-EU court the right to interpret EU law? And if so, how would he deliver on his threat? Since it can't be done legally, does he again envisage legislating to act illegally in a limited and specific way? If so, I have to tell him that I do not believe this House will agree. Uh, so, my Lords, um, obviously the protocol is part of the withdrawal agreement, but that does not prevent it being uh, uh, reopened and renegotiated separately. Uh, I think the same is true of, of any treaty. It's possible to negotiate parts and not the whole thing. On the Article 16 question, um, Obviously, article, the Article 16 provisions in the protocol are nearly sui generis. Uh, there are very few parallels for them everywhere else, and um, the scope of how they may be used remains to be tested. What is clear is that they are safeguards to deal with a evolving and difficult socio-economic situation and uh, the, the issue of trade diversion. And when, when and if we take action under Article 16, obviously that will be the purpose uh, of any action. But as I say, we hope to uh, come to a consensual agreement rather than have to go down that road. Yeah, quite a lively session there in the House of Lords. I think the Press Association characterised uh, Lord Frost's reception in the House of Lords as being grilled by members of the upper chamber. Well, that was how you spent the earlier part of your day, Sean, yesterday, and then it was time to hit the road and go down to Wales, where you had a number of engagements this morning, covering Simon Coveney, Ireland's Foreign Minister's meeting with Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales. Why was Simon Coveney there? What are they doing? And what's the connection with Brexit? Well, it, it is a post-Brexit thing that's going on here because, uh, as we've discussed before, one of the things that bothers the Irish government is that all of the normal meetings that would go on between Irish and British politicians at various EU uh, ministerial meetings and indeed the four times a year when you were guaranteed to have a meeting between the Irish Taoiseach and the British Prime Minister at EU summits of the sort that Tony is at, they don't happen anymore. And so to keep the uh, wheels of government uh, business flowing uh, or turning around, I should say, uh, they've been looking to try and devise and put in place other mechanisms for putting Irish politicians and British politicians together. Uh, now, that uh, has been seized on by the Welsh uh, government, who also want to... Uh, broaden uh, their own, if you like, foreign uh, engagement and uh, obviously the next door neighbour 
uh, to the west of them is Ireland, a country which is their fourth biggest trading partner uh, and through from where a huge amount of freight uh, flows, or at least it did used to flow until uh, Brexit and the customs situation came into play. They've seen a 25% fall in the amount, the volume of freight coming through the ports of Holyhead and Pembroke from Ireland, and they're quite concerned about it. So, so there's lots of things for them to discuss, but they're also looking to formalise their uh, relationships. They drew up a memorandum back in March, um, part of which uh, included having an annual forum between Irish and Welsh ministers. We've had the uh, Environment Minister, Eamon Ryan, also involved in this, and a Trade Minister, uh, Robert Troy, meeting their counterparts in Wales. Significant uh, enough team of uh, senior civil servants travelling for this as well. And this is going to be an annual uh, event. Right. I would have thought February would have been a better time of the year when there might be you know, a sporting fixture. Both sides could fit in around the forum. Yes, but uh, I guess like all the rest of us, they're finding it hard to get tickets for that particular uh, sporting venture uh, in the uh, the rugby world. But nevertheless, uh, this is a post-Brexit uh, phenomenon. It's a change in the way politics is being done uh, as the United Kingdom's own governance has evolved. So perhaps uh, the uh, Irish government's relations with uh, the various government levels in the United Kingdom are having to change as well. And Brexit has catalyzed that process. And so we've seen the opening of that consulate in Manchester a couple of weeks ago. We have the consulate in Edinburgh. Uh, we have... Uh, it's a formal opening of the uh, consular office here. It's been postponed because of Brexit over the past two years. But this is now uh, a, a bit of hard, uh, ongoing uh, product, if you like, of the political engagement. Uh, and so we're going to have this uh, annual forum every year. Brexit, as I said, the catalyst for all of this. Uh, but also there is Brexity business to be done. And I guess from the Irish point of view, it is that issue of uh, customs posts. And that's the first question that I put to uh, Mark Drakeford when we started talking about Brexit issues earlier this afternoon. I guess critical point in the Irish-Welsh relationship, there are two of them actually, it's, it's the ports at Holyhead and Pembroke. What is the updated situation there in relation to the customs infrastructure? So in terms of customs infrastructure, we're further advanced in Holyhead in the north than we are in the south. Of course, Holyhead has about four times the volume of traffic than the southern ports. And in Holyhead, we have firm arrangements in place now to put those customs uh, posts in place. They will be at a slower timescale than was originally envisaged, but that is true across the whole of the United Kingdom. But there I think we feel confident that the agreements are made. We know what is necessary. We have a plan for making it happen. In the South, things are not yet in that position. We remain in dialogue with the UK government about the best way to match the responsibilities that will need to be discharged in Wales. We have two ports close by one another. Do we need separate arrangements in both ports? Could we discharge them through a single post that we could create that would be more or less equidistant from them both? And we remain in a dialogue with local players and the UK government about all of that. Do you have any timeline on when these places might be open? Uh, we have timelines in relation to Holyhead, uh, and they will not be, as I said, according to the original timetable, but close to the latest timetable that the UK government has set out. There is likely to be a longer delay in the south of Wales, 
but because the volumes are significantly different, we think that temporary measures can be devised that will allow us to discharge what needs to be discharged while the more permanent facilities are being designed and delivered. Now you spoke about the volumes, there's been a fairly significant drop-off in volumes coming through those ports from um, Ireland. How concerned are you about that? Well, we're extremely concerned about it. I remember the very first meeting that uh, I attended with the then Secretary of State for exiting the European Union, David Davis. This was in the July after the June referendum. And I was there with the then First Minister, Calvin Jones. And Calvin, always with a strong interest in uh, things Irish for family reasons, said to him then, you know, Wales will be on the front line of a new relationship with the European Union through our ports. And we are very concerned uh, that the impact could be that volumes of trade will fall, putting the future of those ports under question. And uh, in the way that the UK government so often did, it was just so brushed aside in the, oh, it'll all be all right, you know, we'll just, we'll just solve these problems as we go along. Well, we see 25% reductions in volumes of trade through our ports. The early days, the answer of the UK government was, oh, this was teething uh, trouble, these were the consequence of people having hurried goods through when it was uh, easier to do so or holding back goods until things settled down. Well, here we are, you know, eight, nine, ten months on from all of that and still the volumes are depressed. We are anxious, of course, that understandably Irish colleagues are making other arrangements to get goods into the European Union without coming across the land bridge and that these might be permanent restrictions in the volumes of trade that otherwise would have been flowing through from Ireland and through the Welsh ports. Do you suspect that the delay uh, on the UK government side is because they're trying to wangle a position where they don't actually need very much customs uh, controls in place that the, as Lord Frost has said recently, I think they, they don't want to have the full range of customs controls that the EU applies on its external frontiers. They're looking for a lighter type of regime generally at, at all UK ports. Well, I want a proportionate regime, but a regime that respects the rights of other uh, sovereign states to make sure that the things that matter to them in their markets are protected as well. So in the vexed issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol, you know, what, what I've always argued with the UK government is that they need to be round the table in a spirit of looking for an agreement. Now, we've seen the proposals that the European Union uh, itself has made. You know, a constructive spirit of discussion with our closest and most important neighbours is the way to find an agreement on all of this. And then, yes, arrangements do need to be proportionate to the risks that are involved, but they have to be capable of recognising the legitimate interests of others as well as the legitimate interests of the UK. Do you feel happy that Wales gets enough of a say in these negotiations with the EU? Do you think your voice is listened to sufficiently in, in Westminster? Well, I, I never want to pretend that the Welsh Government is something that it's not. We are not the Member State. We do not conduct those negotiations. They are the responsibility of the UK Government. We have opportunities to you know, make sure that our views are known to the UK government. How influential we are, I think, is 
sometimes not as strong as we would like it to be, but it's their responsibility to weigh up all the views uh, that they get and then to be answerable for the decisions that they make. And in terms of the post-Brexit situation, the Irish government are looking for these kind of new ways of, of communicating with, with politics in Britain, this uh, Wales-Ireland Forum today being one of them. Do you think that helps you to get your point of view about Brexit out to wider audiences perhaps, particularly back through to Brussels? Well, we know that we have to work you know, even harder than we used to to make sure that Wales's voice in Europe is still heard. We've kept our office in Brussels open. We're advertising at the moment for a new post of a European envoy from the Welsh government to make sure that you know, there is somebody there who can be talked to and can talk on behalf of Wales. And our bilateral relationships with a series of key European partners, the Basque country, Flanders, Brittany, Baden-Württemberg, places that we've had long-standing and really important relationships, we go on working really hard to keep those relationships vibrant. Now, our closest and longest-standing partner is in uh, Ireland, you know, our patron saints. Uh, we were swapping them you know, 1,500 years ago. So we've got the longest possible relationship and one that spreads across so many aspects of our lives, you know, sporting links, cultural links, educational links. You know, the university just across the road here teaches the Irish language. We have students from Ireland coming every year to be based in Cardiff to learn about that, learn Welsh, learn about the, the whole sort of Celtic uh, inheritance there and we have very strong economic links as well. So today's event and the agreement that lies behind it is a real affirmation of that relationship and from our point of view it is an absolutely key relationship that allows us to get a view into the European Union and to remind people there Wales has not gone away, we are outward looking international nation keen to go on engaging with people right around the world. First Minister Mark Drakeford, thank you very much. Thank you. John, that was the Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford, but of course in, in Wales to meet him was the Foreign Minister Simon Coveney. You caught up with him as well and also obviously we're keen to mine the rich seam that is Brexit. Yeah, exactly. First question, what have you been hearing back from Brussels uh, about what Lord Frost and Mara Shevchevich have been talking about? Uh, what's your impression or information coming back from Brussels about how those talks are going? Well, they are going. That's the first thing. Um, so, you know, we've had serious uh, discussion between both sides. Uh, my understanding is that that will continue into next week. Uh, there haven't been any major breakthroughs, but certainly there is serious discussion now around the paper uh, that Vice President Sefcovic launched last Wednesday evening. Uh, which from an EU perspective was a very serious intervention uh, to, to say very clearly to Northern Ireland and interests there, business interests and political interests, that we are hearing you, we are listening to your concerns in terms of the implementation of the protocol and we are responding in a very practical and pragmatic way to the, the key issues that you've raised with us to try to put solutions on the table and those solutions are very real. You know, to reduce checks on food products by up to 80%, to reduce checks 
from a customs perspective by 50% to provide effectively guarantees in terms of supply chains of medicines from GB into Northern Ireland to put new communications and governance structures in place to make sure that leaders in Northern Ireland really understand and have a say in terms of the future implementation of the protocol. You know, these are the responses to the real issues that have been raised. We know that the British government have other issues too. Uh, in terms of, of governance and the role of the ECJ. Um, of course, that needs discussion, but I think the focus of, uh, of the EU side and I think the focus of the discussion this week between both sides has very much been around the practical implementation of the very comprehensive plan that was, um, that was uh, published uh, last Wednesday by Maris Seftovich. Mm, but they leave the hard stuff on the ECJ then to last, maybe pushing it into next month? And perhaps, well, I'm not you, sure. perhaps you'll be fighting the, 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 that battle on two fronts with Poland as well. I know, well, there's no, there's no parallels between the the um, uh, the political issues and tension in in the context of of Poland and Brexit. Uh, they're two entirely different issues. We have a deal on Brexit. It's international law. It's an international treaty. The EU is simply looking to implement that. Uh, the, the UK has asked for and wants to discuss how that's implemented and wants to see change there. Um, they are two entirely different issues. Uh, and from our perspective, what we want to do is we want to implement what's already been agreed with the maximum flexibility possible to solve the real problems that have been raised, particularly from, from leaders in Northern Ireland. That's the approach of the EU and I hope we will have a partner in the British government to do that. So that was Simon Coveney, Sean, you were speaking to him earlier today, Friday, as we record this. Tony, that final answer there from Simon Coveney, where he's uh, seems somewhat almost peeved that Sean would raise the issue of Poland and the debacle around the European Court of Justice's jurisdiction as being in any way related to the issue of the European Court of Justice in the Northern Ireland Protocol. Is it really such a tangential connection that would warrant such a peeved response? I've certainly got a little bit of peeviness myself from people I've spoken to around around town here in Brussels about any read across from the Polish question and the Northern Ireland Protocol. But, you know, I think the, the Polish issue is so fundamental and so tricky for the European Union. I mean, as, as people say, any time the EU confronts a big internal problem, there, there's usually a way around it. Angela Merkel will get involved, there'll be talks, there'll be compromises, there'll be money, there will be a sunset clause. But the Polish issue around the primacy of EU law and the Polish Constitutional Court effectively saying that the Polish Constitution was supreme over EU law, I mean, that's just so existential, if you like, for the EU, and it, it throws up an awful lot of very, very dark and difficult issues. Um, but I, and I think because of that, there is just a general sensitivity around preserving the sanctity, if you like, from an EU point of view of the legal order of the European Court of Justice. So that probably is playing into people's minds when they're looking at, well, you know, are we going to have to have another uh, kind of under the bonnet look at the ECJ and Northern Ireland, uh, you know, putting in perhaps some kind of Swiss style layer between the operation of the protocol in Northern Ireland and any recourse to the European Court of Justice, you know, that, that it, it, I think it will play in and is certainly on, in, in people's minds. Um, but, there, you know, Poland is a fully-fledged member state of the European Union, a big member state, big population, 
Northern Ireland is not a member of the EU. It's, it has this hybrid relationship with the with the European single market. Um, so the, these are they, these are different situations. Right. Uh, but just, I suppose, the diplomatic mood music that's created by people running in the French election, throwing up the idea that the European Court of Justice is engaged in overreach, Poland throwing up the idea that the European Court of Justice has been engaged in overreach, a recent ruling by the Bundesverfassungsgericht in Karlsruhe. Whether or not these things are being characterised correctly or whether they've been even put in the correct context, it can be sold back to Europe as, well, you know, the European Court of Justice, even your own members question it when it comes to diplomatic talks between the UK and the European Union. Is that where the peevishness stems from? Well, that, I think you're you're absolutely right in the way you've framed that because, I mean, I mean, just, just to put people in the picture, what, what this is about, um, the, the Polish government has been uh, locked in a dispute with the European Commission and the European Court of Justice over the independence of the judiciary. This is going back to 2015. There have been numerous legal challenges. The European Court of Justice Justice took action, uh, or the Commission took action in the Court of Justice over Poland essentially creating a disciplinary tribunal within the Supreme Court where, where judges and prosecutors could be sacked. Uh, and they've also been, according to you know very well-documented reports uh, on this issue, they've been populating the Polish Constitutional Court and the Supreme Court, the Public Prosecutor's Office, the lower courts, with supporters of the Law and Justice Party, the the, the ruling uh, right-wing party in Poland. Uh, and this is seen as a wholesale assault on judicial independence in Poland. And essentially, if the EU is a body of law, a community of law, uh, then one country can't be following rules differently uh, to other countries. And when the Constitutional Court or Tribunal in Poland said that, look, uh, the EU doesn't have the right or the ECJ doesn't have the right to tell us to shut down our disciplinary uh, tribunal, um, then that's, that really puts, puts the cat amongst the pigeons. Um, so, so while, you know, while Poland is saying this is an example of ECJ overreach, the vast majority of member states and the commission are saying, uh, no, it's not. This is about you trying to find, you Poland uh, trying to find some cover uh, to continue to dismantle the uh, separation of powers in Poland uh, and to politicise the judiciary, uh, and that's something that we're prepared, we're absolutely determined uh, to to prevent. Okay, and the issue of funding, of course, as well. Can they or can they not access the full fruits of EU funding if they're in open defiance of EU law? That European Union is trying to stamp out this particular cakeism from Poland. Yeah, I mean the, the the question has been raised, you know, what can the commission and member states do if Poland continues on this course of saying that its constitution is supreme over over the European Court of Justice uh, when it comes to to law. Um they they have taken legal action last summer when le- when member states forged this huge uh, COVID recovery package of 750 billion euro. 
were trying desperately to get some kind of conditionality attached to it because at the time Poland was also cracking down on LGBT rights. Uh, the Dutch in particular were saying, why, why are we giving huge sums of taxpayers' money to a country that clearly is in flagrant violation of, of EU values in terms of minority rights? And that kind of got baked into the final uh, recovery fund package, this conditionality mechanism that if you didn't do certain things, then you could be deprived of the the money that, that you would get under the COVID recovery fund. Poland is due to get around 35 billion euro in grants and loans. Uh, the trouble is, of course, that the moment this conditionality mechanism was agreed by member states, Poland and Hungary uh, sent the, the issue to the European Court of Justice, where else, uh, to see if it was actually that con conditionality mechanism was compliant with EU law. Uh, and the Court of Justice, needless to say, is going to be ruling on that very soon. Um, so uh, while all that's been happening, Poland hasn't got a, a euro of that 35 billion euro that it is due. It has submitted its uh, its um, its its program, its package of measures that every country has to put in to qualify for this money. And as far as I'm told, the Polish program is, is a good one where, where they intend to spend the money. So this is a bit of a tricky uh, ground for the Commission to, to withhold that, that money um, simply because so many member states are, are angry at Poland for, for it. its, its um, what it's doing in terms of the rule of law and the primacy of EU law. All right, well, Tony, I suppose look ahead to the coming week, seeing as you have the mic. What's uh, what's coming up in your neck of the woods that relates to this podcast, I suppose? The talks on the protocol will continue next week in London. Um, we, we'll try and see what um, movement, if any, there is there. On the general EU front, there's a, a big energy council meeting in Luxembourg on Tuesday, which is all about the energy crisis and, and uh, how to deal with that. And then on Wednesday, I'll be traveling to Denmark to report on a carbon neutral island. And this is part of RTE's coverage ahead of COP26. Right. So I may be talking to you from Denmark uh, right. next Friday. Sean, what about you? Anything coming up on your radar, that meeting between Mara Shevchevich, perhaps, and David Frost in London? Possibly, although I'm not sure how uh, high profile they'll want to make it or whether they want to say anything about it. Certainly in terms of public events, uh, it's that man, Lord Frost again. He's uh, back appearing before another committee, uh, this time in the House of Commons. It's the European Scrutiny Committee, the one chaired by Sir Bill Cash, the veteran Eurosceptic, no right. friend of the European Court of Justice, he, and I would expect him to be uh, asking a few pointed questions about the ECJ and that Polish situation and the primacy of EU law, uh, because why let uh, a good opportunity uh, to put the boot in go to waste, even though this issue of uh, EU uh, law supremacy has been established for many years, even through court actions, before even Tony Connolly and I were born. So that's how ancient this uh, principle goes back to. Other than that, yes, it's all about COP and the uh, lead into uh, COP26, which of course is being hosted by the United Kingdom uh, up in uh, Glasgow. Uh, lots of uh, political nervousness behind the scenes uh, around that. Uh, but yes, uh, the expectation also that any actions to do with uh, Article 16 or flare-ups in that uh, Brexit talks process not going to happen this side of COP26. So uh, that's the, the kind of working assumption of most people, that if there's going to be a breakdown or a showdown or a walkout or any of those other uh, things happening in the Brexit talks, it won't be until after COP26, uh, which is in the second week of November.
Right, well, it's, it's, it's nice to think anyway, Sean, you'll be bringing us some cash guaranteed uh, next week. Well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungai, and RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's London Correspondent here in Cardiff in Wales. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor at the EU Summit in Brussels. Thanks for listening.